hit me. From Studio P in Sausalito, the home of the hit, it's time for... Suckatash. Yes, Suckatash, the comedy soundcast soundcast featuring snippets from comedy... Soundcast. And also interviews with comedians, comedian soundcasters, and other showbiz folk. And now, here's your host, internationally recognized comedy soundcast soundcaster, Mark... Hershaw. Mark Hershaw. Hello, kind listener. This is your every other weekly host, Mark Hershaw, guiding you through episode 272 of Suckatash, the comedy soundcast soundcast. Before I tell you about the treat I have in store for you today, if you missed last week's Epi 271, entitled Birth, Life, and Death, with my erstwhile co-host Tyson Saner, it's not too late to catch it. He featured clips from Dad Pants, Shank, and the Endless Honeymoon Podcast. And it's available from Apple and Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, Audible.com, PodBay, iHeartRadio, and of course, you can find it and every episode of this unstoppable machine called Suckatash at our website, SuckatashShow.com. Instead of clips for you this week, I sat down on one side of a lively Zoom chat with John Ross Bowie host of the Household Faces soundcast that I just can't seem to get enough of, where he interviews super familiar journeyman actors who you would definitely recognize from their faces in films and TV, if not their names. John is one of those faces himself, whom you'd likely know from the Big Bang Theory, Speechless, and literally dozens and dozens of other things. We'll get into his credits, his soundcast, his origin story, and a whole lot more coming up in a few minutes. I recently had another chat, but as the guest this time, on an upcoming episode of What Are You Watching? with Chris Mancini, best known perhaps as the co-host of the long-running Comedy Film Nerd Soundcast, but who also hosts The Quiet Journeys of Professor Atwood and Conversations from the Abyss. He's also a past guest of this show, by the way. We talked about various TV shows and movies we've been catching up on, and that episode will be dropping soon, I'm told. Uh, I'll be sure to mention it in our socials, so do follow us at Suckatash Show on both Instagram and Twitter. I don't think I have a whole lot left to share with you before we get into my talk with John Ross Bowie, other than to let you know that this installment of Suckatash is brought to you by Henderson's Pants' new Hallow Pants, just in time for Halloween at the end of next month. Listen to this word from them, and then we'll dive right into the chat. Ghosts and goblins, Frodo and Spider-Man, and lots and lots of slutty nurses all wandering the streets can only mean one thing. No, not Fleet Week. It's Halloween. This special time every year, Henderson's restocks the shelves and interwebs with our Deathly Hallowed. More than just a pair of pants and yet not quite a full-blown costume, Henderson's Deathly Hallowear is meant to be worn under your disguise to make sure your Halloween stays safe, sane, and filled with treats. The wizards at Henderson's Tailoring Factory start with a thin yet comfy layer of 100% cotton lining. Stitched to that is a second layer, this one made from 70 mil thick military-grade Kevlar. 
Finally, your Deathly Hallowair is coated with waterproof matte black acrylic, strong enough to keep you safe in the darkest night, whether it's hailing hail or bullets. Henderson's Deathly Hallowair is also light enough to assure that you can keep tricking and treating until the cows come home. Moms and dads, Henderson's wants to remind you that not even our Deathly Hallowair can guarantee complete protection from the low lives and scumbags that are waiting to prey on your precious children. It can't detect razor blades and apples or roofies and rollos. So when you steal your kids' candy while they sleep, be extra careful and take a good look at what you're biting into before it bites into you. Anderson's Deathly Hallowair was originally designed for Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, and Michael Myers. Not the unstoppable killing machine from the Halloween movie franchise, but that unstoppable mugging machine from Wayne's World. That's Henderson's. Fine trousers and costumery since 1549. And now back to Suckatash. John Ross Bowie. (laughs) I've been preparing to say it ever since you uh, were on stage with me at the uh, Sketch Fest in San Francisco like two years ago, three years ago. I can't even remember now. I think it was. What is time anyway? I want to say that was 2019. Think you're about right. two and a half years ago yeah um yeah um yeah my my name gets <laughs> butchered all the time I, I hardly even do anything about it the craziest thing happened a couple of weeks ago i was on brian posain's podcast i heard it you heard it okay heard so you it heard him screw up my middle name yes yes on rose bowie yes i happen was, to be a... so in his head about the last name that he completely <laughs> whiffed the one that is exactly spelled like it sounds it was amazing to watch I'm a huge D&D freak, so uh, nerd poker is one of my jams. Oh, great, great. Yeah, I, um, uh, the pandemic blew me back into a couple of my childhood obsessions, and <laughs> I have a monthly game going now in uh, the Valley. And um, and then when Posein reached out to me, um, and I love the people that get Chris Tallman, Blink and oh, Patch. I, I love all those guys so much. Um, so it was a, an honor to be asked. I love that show. It's just a funny way. Just the title alone, Nerd Poker. The title alone, just it's it's so, <laughs> I, I hate to be quite so cynical about it, but it's such phenomenal branding. <laughs> yes. Yeah. This goes right out and says like, this is what this is. If you If this sounds appealing to you, you will probably like it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Couldn't be more straightforward. The, the older I get, the more I realize that there's just a, a certain amount of ham in everybody. There, I mean, there's there's very few people who are honest to God, actual introverts. And a lot of yeah. people, when given the shot, even around just around the table among a couple of friends to like adopt a British accent, because that's how you think your paladin speaks, will hop to that opportunity. Just to uh, bring everybody up to speed, people will, would know you if they saw your face and perhaps heard your voice from Big Bang Theory, from Speechless on ABC that ran three seasons. But as as you do at the top of, of your show, and we'll talk about your show in a, in a few moments here, you always throw in an additional credit. It's always a different credit. For something that you've been in so if you were to pick two or three more to kind of throw at people what would what would those be i actually have to have a word document uh that i <laughs> so i don't repeat myself yeah um where yeah be, because my my the podcast is about journeyman actors i do my the two i'm most often recognized for and then i throw a random one that might have just been like you know 
Um, what I'm going to do is one episode of Hank Azaria's Free Agents that um, was filmed and in the can, but never aired because the show got canceled three weeks into its run. Oh, man. Um, and what's another good random credit to pull in? A series of commercials in 2002 for the TGI Fridays uh, chain. <laughs> Excellent. So your, your podcast is called Household Faces, and I recently reviewed it for uh, vulture.com when I really appreciate that but it was great it was a it was one of those reviews that you get where you're like yes that's what we're trying to do that's exactly it um because I because you mentioned how it was sort of a, a great companion piece for people who've just been sitting in front of their tv for 16 months and um that was that was one of our our big intentions is to try to you know because you start seeing the same faces, you really oh, do. Exactly. You know, the the more you get into prestige drama or or you know elevated comedy or whatever they're calling it, you start seeing a lot of faces come up again and again. And uh, I, I I was going to try and help them tell their stories. Yeah, we, my wife and I, have an ongoing game show as we're watching television. Going, I know that guy. And then it's a, we try and figure it out. We try and guess a few where we, and sometimes we, we get it, but oftentimes it's then a scramble for phones and looking up IMDB and figuring out where we saw that person. <laughs> that gnaws at me. And what's, what's it is, that? and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. It has actually been linked to my, and I don't toss the word around lightly. I have an actual diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder. And one mm. of the ways it manifests itself is that I can't just sit there and go, oh, that guy looks familiar and let it slide. Right. I just can't. Sorry. That's like like walking around with like uh, axle grease on my hands uh, uh, while you know there's a, a glass sitting at the edge of a table. <laughs> I just can't with that at all. So the phone helped. I do try to do it organically. I do try to see if I can figure it out myself. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm no hero. I'll go to my phone if I, <laughs> if I need to. I used to try and palm it off and my wife would go, where do we know him from? I go, oh, a million things. She goes, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. More specifics. <laughs> Great. Name one. <laughs> More specifics. And it's even, it's even worse with British television because so much of that is streaming now. And those actors work so much. On well, it's so such a smaller pool on yeah. so many fronts. And, and I was just talking about this on, a, on another uh, lesser podcast, um, but the, um, because the pool is smaller, there is out of necessity, some somewhat less snobbery regarding actors and the boxes into which they are put. Mm. So you will have guys, like the, the best example is Ian McKellen and Derek Jacoby, who um, are in a multicam sitcom called Vicious. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. which is a uh, uh, studio audience for camera setup. Um, and when they're not doing that, they can go to the West End and play Lear. And, right, right. Um, and, there's, I, and if you ask me in, here in the States, there's absolutely no reason John Goodman shouldn't be going from the Connors to King Lear. I'm dying to see his Lear. <laughs> but we put people in boxes here yeah. in the States. And, you know, again, the the... Only thing worse than being typecast is being not cast. However, there is an open-mindedness towards people's careers in Britain that we don't always see there. So yeah, you'll see a guy show up in like a super broad Mr. Bean comedy, and then he'll be looking for, you know, dead kids in Yorkshire a week <laughs> later. And it's the same guy. Yeah, uh, to, to that point about the fact these guys, I mean, you used the term journeyman actor before, and all those guys in Britain and women are journeyman actors because uh, I, this is a story that 
that dates back quite a while ago, but I was fortunate enough when I was doing reviews of movies for a comedy newspaper, I got to have dinner with Michael Palin mm. when A Fish Called Wanda came out. Oh my goodness. Wow. And uh, it was great. I got, I got this call said, yeah, he's, he's doing a tour, but he, he wants to have dinner with like three people. So I got to be one of those people when he came through San Francisco. And uh, we talked about that. And he talked about how, yeah, because the Pythons would get together at like a tavern, uh, you know, and just hang out and nobody bothered them. He said, because in, in England, this was at the time, I mean, celebrity has sort of taken over the world. But at the time, he says, that's just our job. And everyone just kind of goes, oh, look, there's those guys from the television. But <laughs> it, yeah. it didn't mean more than that. It was just those guys from the television. And it's still that way. It seems unable to go, you know, from from movies to TV to plays to all these things. I've seen it up close, and it's it's always really uh, cool and inspiring the way they they uh, handle their actors in the UK. On the downside, their craft service sucks. <laughs> Wait, you don't like boiled red whips? But you, if they had them out regularly, that'd be fine. But like, you know, there's nothing. Maybe there's a small snack. 4 p.m., of course, there's tea. And, um, you know, and the good news is you won't, you won't go long enough. Uh, you probably won't go into overtime. So uh, you can, you know, bugger off and get yourself some Indian food that will be better than anything you can get in the United States. So I don't know. It's, there's give and take in everything, Mark. Yeah, I've, I've had British directors on, on a few projects that when closing time comes, closing time comes. That's, we're done for the day. That's it. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's pretty wild. Yeah. So what gave you the idea to do Household Faces? I mean, other than the fact, I mean, you are, you are deeply ingrained in, in the realm of the people you're talking to. But what, why do a podcast? Well, that's very nice of you. And why do a podcast is a phenomenal question that I'm uh, going to answer hastily with because I was asked. Ben Blacker, who I know is, ben. yeah, who's the writer and producer of Thrilling Adventure Hour. He also does a couple of other podcasts, um, the Dead Pilot Society, the mm -hmm. Writers Panel. He is a producer's producer. He really likes his job. He's very good at it. He's good at assembling talent and reached out to me. Um, I hadn't talked to him in months, but he reached out to me about maybe hosting a podcast and asked, said, I think you'd be a good interviewer. I had hosted a thrilling adventure panel at one point at a Comic-Con that had gone well. Um, and it was a last minute thing too. I got kind of thrown up there and I, I kind of kind of bullshitted my way through it and went fairly well. So, because I think with a little prep, you'd be a, a really good interviewer. And I, I'd, I'd like to know who you would like to interview. And I, I, the first thing I came to mind to be like, you know, guys like me and uh, and above who are um, working all the time, but, you know, your mom maybe doesn't know their name and who are, you know, rarely number one on a call sheet and uh, maybe don't have awards, but are working steadily regardless and who um, are clearly in it for the love and the upper middle class income because they're not getting rich and famous. And he thought that sounded like a good idea. And he hooked me up with his podcast network, Forever Dog Network, who do um, who do Writer's Panel and a couple of other things. They do Double Threat with uh, mm -hmm. Tom Sharpling and Julie Klausner. It's a great organization. And they were really gung-ho about it. And while I was pitching the show, the sort of idea of the show to them, I, I yanked the phrase household faces kind of at um, the polite ways. I yanked it out of thin air. And they kind of, the, the eyebrows went up and my wife was in the room and she kind of passed me a note while I was in the Zoom meeting and said, that's it, that's the title. And, uh, and we went with it. And it's funny because 90% of the people I mentioned it to 
by virtue of the title, like, oh, it's so it's you interviewing that guy's. Yeah. And then the other 10% go, you're going around your house looking for faces <laughs> in like furniture and stuff. And I'm and like, no, I'll, that's, I would listen to that podcast, but that is not what I'm doing. Your chief demographic, the first ep is three episodes in, right? Right. <laughs> Jesus is in the toaster. I know he is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Ben Black was actually a guest on this show back in episode 37. Uh, okay. Which was a while ago. We've been, we've been, I've been doing this podcast for 10 years. We started oh my God. in yeah, 2011. You're a, a little bit sort of the same genesis as, as you coming up with an idea of what you're in, right? So I'm, I've been in the world of comedy for years and everybody was starting to do comedy podcasts, but nobody was listening. 2011 was like this kind of like, oh, okay, there's literally like 12% of America had even heard of what a podcast was. So I started this podcast, which ostensibly we most episodes, we play clips of other people's comedy podcasts to promote okay. them. So right. just to, you know, play, uh, you know, four or five clips and promote them and stuff. But um, it, uh, your, your show really caught my attention, obviously. Um, and as I, as I mentioned on the, uh, the nice blog, the uh, the episode you know i just clipped the the one with xander berkeley on our most recent episode and i mentioned i've added you to my must listen list every week oh that's nice that's nice to hear i am trying to make something pretty compact so it's good for like your hour-long hike an hour-long commute um i don't want to overstay my welcome i don't want to be too indulgent i want to keep myself out of it as much as i possibly can i mean i'm going to inject myself a little bit just out of necessity and just sort of as a way of uh, bonding with my guests sometimes about certain um joys or indignities of this line of work but for the most part i um i try to keep it about the the guests and i try to keep it around an hour so i i'd like to think we're running a, a relatively tight listenable ship yeah, that's good. That's good. I used to let my podcast go on and on and on and on. And then I realized, oh, no one's listening. <laughs> well, you're not alone in that, you know, by any stretch. I just, um, I'm just trying to be mindful of, I mean, there's guys who can, you know, get it, you know, get an hour and 50 minutes and, and change. Um, you know, I think of never not funny, which is so yeah. consistently strong, um, even when, when I'm not on it. And <laughs> I, I, I think they do such great work. Um, but for the most part, um, uh, I think there's a risk of people, particularly people in comedy who are like, yeah, I'm just going to riff and, uh, you're just lucky to be a fly on the wall. I'm like, mm, am I? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So let me ask, uh, kind of go back into your origins. Cause one of the things you, you covered off on, uh, both when you had Xander Berkeley on, on and w even when I was, uh, talking to you at the sketch fest is you've got a history of improv comedy. Yeah. And is that what led you into acting or had you been acting first? And then you said, I need some more, more tools in the shed. No, I um, started in improv um, with the secret express purpose that I told very few people about that I wanted to actually graduate to acting. Mm. But there's something about improv that seemed like a way to get into acting without announcing to the world that, hey, I am now an actor because <laughs> I was 27. And I was um, not, you know, long in the tooth by any stretch, but a lot of people who go into that line of work have decided a decade beforehand that they're going to do so. So at 27, I was just in a lousy employment situation and uh, my, my, my romantic relationship at the time was falling apart. Started taking classes kind of on a dare at Upright Citizens Brigade. 
and very quickly discovered that I really like doing improv. And then it's kind of the opposite of what you said. Then as, as things went on, I was like, well, I should learn more about moving my body and I should learn more about working with scripted material. But my, my foundation was, um, was in doing that kind of, of kind of smart, kind of organic, maybe even somewhat slower improv as opposed to like the really fast paced, uh, whose line is it anyway kind of stuff. Right. So you're doing, doing long form stuff. We're doing long form stuff. We, I, we were, the UCB trains you in the Herald, um, which is a, um, a Googleable improv form um, <laughs> that resembles uh, when properly done a, a, an interesting three act play that dovetails gracefully um, and can also resemble a complete clusterfuck, but um, they were, uh, they were trying to train us as best they could. But yeah, I eventually just realized this was something I really wanted to do. And I'd been harboring it as a, just sort of a secret wish um, and decided to really commit to it in my late twenties. And then when you started to, to segue into getting acting work, did you find that the the improv chops were helping you make those choices you've got to make when you're in the room? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it comes down to, you know, when, when people say he's comfortable with improv, sometimes people are like, oh, listen, I'm really happy with my script. I don't need this jag off coming in here and making up new lines, which is not what I do um, unless expressly requested to do so. What improv helps you with is it heightens your listening, it heightens your awareness, and it can make you better at the the small little physical choices that can accompany the lines and can color in the lines a little bit and hopefully get whatever the writer's intent is across in a leaner, more efficient, and hopefully more natural fashion. And this goes for a sitcom, this goes for you know, this TGI Fridays commercials I mentioned earlier, it's just a really, really good tool to keep you in the moment focused and listening and playing. Right. Now, do you, do you get a chance to kind of lick your chops when a director says, okay, let's, let's do one for fun or let's see. What oh, sure. Got. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, and that is, that is incredibly, uh, incredibly entertaining and, and, and enjoyable. And even it's funny, even if it um, doesn't end up in the cut, it's still terrific for cast morale. Actually, Xander Berkeley mentioned something about this in his um, when he was discussing Harold Ramis mm. on uh, on Household Faces. He um, he was at Video Village with Ramis. Ramis let everyone do a fun run, and this is you know Michael Sarah, Jack Black, Oliver Platt, you know all these these kind of geniuses up there, and Ramis was made it abundantly clear that he had absolutely no intention of using the funny stuff they were doing. He was going to stick to the script, but he's like, ah, eh, comedy's good for endorphins or improv's good for endorphins. Yeah. And just knowing, even giving the actors the illusion that they're participatory uh, in, in the production and it's, and in its writing, I think can be a really good thing for uh, morale and spirit in general. Yeah. Now, do you, do you write yourself? Do you uh, write screenplays? I, yeah, everybody writes, um, you know, that there was a, you know, there was a, a, allegedly, I've never actually seen it, but allegedly there's a documentary somewhere where somebody put up a camera outside of a Los Angeles grocery store and everyone who came out of the store was asked how their screenplay was doing. And almost everybody had an answer, just came out with like a bag of groceries, like, well, I'm kind of stuck on act three and wait, what is this for? <laughs> um, so that's, yes, I write, um, I have written, I've developed for television. I don't know that I have the knack for it 
my wife is writing on Grey's Anatomy right now. Oh, great. Which has been really interesting and really, um, and she's really enjoying herself. I think she's, she's got an incredibly strong individual voice, but she's also able to take that strong individual voice and put it in service of somebody else's vision. Uh, in this case, Shonda Rhimes, Christopher Vernoff, and, and the people who are, have been in charge of Grey's, which is a machine now. It's a, this is his sure. 18th season. You know, it's not, you know, nobody's going to come in and, and reinvent the Grey's wheel because the thing is clearly running just fine. Right. Um, so I, I, I'm, always in awe of people who can step in and lock into even something as mainstream as Grey's Anatomy and, and do so with such ease. And she mm. seems to be doing just that. I, I, yeah, I wrote a couple of pilots with um, Kevin Sussman a few years ago. One is still sitting on my IMDb page as if it is in production, which it is not. Um, <laughs> it has been dormant for easily five years now, but okay. I started writing uh, stage plays a couple of years ago okay. and has fewer cooks in the kitchen. And as such, I found a little more satisfying, certainly not lucrative at all, but, um, but, but artistically satisfying. And I'm fortunate enough that my day job is episodic TV work. So I can afford to occasionally write a, a stage play for, for, uh, for me and my friends to enjoy. Well, that's nice. And the writer in a, in a staged production has a lot more skin in the game than you do if you've written a uh, a movie or a TV show. More skin in the game, more autonomy. Um, you're you when you do get notes, you'll find that generally speaking, they're smarter. They they get closer to it's the kind of notes that help you get to the vision you had in mind in the first place, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to um, TV notes, which are like, why can't this guy be more likable? Like oh, the character I named the douchebag. I don't know, man. Well, uh, <laughs> let me uh, let me look into that. I will. Um, Let's circle back and um, we'll reconnect next week. I don't want to go too tangenty right now, but I years ago worked on a, a one and done Larroquette sitcom called Happy Family with him and Christine Baranski. I had no scenes with either of them, but I got to watch them work all week and um, geniuses of the form. Mm -hmm. It was a multicam sitcom. We did it in front of an audience. Pamela Fryman directed it. This was before she was on uh, How I Met Your Mother. It's before How I Met Your Mother existed. And it was such a satisfying week because a guy like Larroquette comes in on the first day and crushes it at the table read, just knocks everything out of the park. But then all week keeps trying to see if there's a better way to do each line. Mm, and he yes. and a couple of boys were like, "Wow, well, my God, you actually you polished that to a beautiful sheen, and it's even better than it was on Monday." Um, and then everything else was just completely in the bag, and and he got so few rewrites because he was just coming in and just absolutely crushing it so consistently. And she is a you know she's an accomplished musical theater actress, and her sense of rhythm and even the melody of a joke. I know that mm. sounds a little little woo woo, but she just has a, a a keen sense of the musicality of of sitcom. And there's people who don't like the musicality of a sitcom. There's people who find it a little too mm -hmm. rhythmic and a little too beat joke beat joke beat joke, which you know. Um, not everybody wants to dance to that. I get that, but she's very very good at it, and uh, it was marvelous to watch. That's interesting. The, the idea of rhythms of comedy is very interesting. Um, we've had Dana Carvey on the show a few times. and uh, Oh, yeah, who is a phenomenal drummer on top uh, of everything a, else. He's, he's a great drummer, and uh, I've talked to him at length about 
the musicality of his impressions because he does them from a musical standpoint mm -hmm. and not from a listening to i mean he listens to the voice but he's listening to the rhythm which is why his his impressions are never dead on impressions but they're always amazing characterizations yeah they're caricatures yeah but they get to a truth like a caricature does you know um you know the way someone will um will draw obama's disarming smile and the big ears or, or what have you and you're like no that's that's obama that's that's you yeah. know those are the those are the larger points you know and he does that with his mccartney in particular yeah um you know much has been said about his his george bush but his mccartney is is something to behold because it it distills that silliness that that runs through mccartney's life his solo work and i'm not i don't mean that in a, in a pejorative way i'm like the last person on earth who still enjoys wonderful christmas time but he he <laughs> he nails something about mccartney's joie de vivre that i've never seen anybody else even bother to do when they're doing mccartney it's it's really interesting to watch he called me one day when he had laryngitis and was doing mccartney because he says this is the closest i can get to how mccartney sounds now oh wow <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> Which was funny. One of the reasons I was asking about writing is because um, as a as as a journeyman actor, now do you use journeyman actor sort of as a replacement or sort of interchangeably with character actor? Or well, that's a really good question that we're talking about a lot on the show. Um, there is something, I think there are some people who bristle at the idea of character actor because they immediately just go, um, bit part <laughs> bit part or um uh not particularly photogenic um you know and i, I don't want um, people to hear that and immediately go you know i, I don't want to get a, a a beautiful woman on my podcast and make her feel like warren oates you know i want to i want to make sure that everyone uh feels uh seen and appreciated our rules for bringing people on the show such as they are are Nobody who's been number one on a call sheet, nobody who's got an Oscar or an Emmy. Um, and that's pretty much it. Um, okay. <laughs> it's it's the people who round out, um, you know, co-stars I'll take. Mm -hmm. But I like journeyman actor and I love what the British say. The British say jobbing actor, mm. um, which is another thing they do well. I, I like the phrase jobbing actor quite a bit. I think it, yeah. it, cause what we, what the podcast is about is the various kinds of employment and how actors have been in the gig economy for millennia. <laughs> right, right. And we welcome the rest of you. Come on in. It's weird, but you know, <laughs> you can make a living. And just sort of celebrating that inconsistency and that variety mm -hmm. in a way that you might not have it were you to, you know, do 30 years at a at a bank. Um which again, not taking anything away from from that, that sounds like a if uh, if if you could if you're good at math, then that sounds like a wonderfully <laughs> consistent way to uh, you know provide you you make sure you get your vacation. Then I think that's a terrific uh, terrific thing to do. I don't know. Household faces is right there. You know, I think it, yeah. it really says it right there. It's people you recognize but can't name. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about uh, sort of where you came from. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in New York City. Okay. I grew up, um, I was born in Queens, but when I was three, we moved into Midtown Manhattan. It was kind of near my dad's work. Um, my dad worked in Midtown and didn't want to commute 
in from Rigo Park, which is, I don't know how well you know uh, the city, but Rigo Park is, is out there in Queens. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a hike. It's, a, it's 45 minutes on the subway if everything goes right and nothing okay. ever goes right, you know? So, um, so he could, on a, on a weather permitting, he could walk to work from Midtown. And what was interesting about that is right in the middle of the theater district, so I got to see some theater when I was little, but I also got to meet a lot of actors who were struggling, which I think is one of the reasons I, I kind of held off on mm. pursuing it. Cause I was like, oh, this looks really kind of weird and unstable and, you know, a lot of very upset grownups in this line <laughs> of work. But it was weird too, because my father was working in the paper industry, was fucking miserable, you know, had a place to go every day, but was yeah. fucking miserable had this deep voice and this wonderful um, love of theater and TV and film, all of which he infected me with, but he just mm. had that old world perception that acting was not a serious profession. It was something to be consumed, but not performed necessarily. And so he will enjoy the work, but he would not participate in the work. Mm. And uh, it took me a little while, it took me well, about 27 years to, to shake that off and decide that I should give it a try. So what were what were you aiming for up to up till that point till the sort of well that was the thing I wasn't entirely sure um, so I I got a degree in my bachelor's is in English I'm saying my bachelor's as if I have any other degree just the <laughs> one degree I have is is in English um, and uh, I got certified to teach high school which I did for one year that's a whole other podcast. But I thought about doing that professionally. I thought about going into radio for a little while because I, I had a really good time doing college radio. Um, and uh, but that's a that's a hard circuit that's very um, also uh, very unreliable. You really have to go where the jobs are, and uh, it's like academia, really, with worse hours. You know, I mean, the money's not great, and you have to go wherever, whatever market will have you. I did overnights in Paradise, California. Where's Paradise? Oh, wait, Paradise, <laughs> California, up north, where the yeah. massive fire was. If you, yeah. uh, oh yeah, my yeah. god, yeah, oh wow, yeah. So you know that it's um, it's very very tough work. Yep. Um, and the more freedom you have doing it is absolutely there will be a direct corollary to how little you can support a family. <laughs> yes, and how small a station you're working on. Yeah. Um, but the bigger you get, you know, everyone thinks they're going to be Howard Stern. Like, no, you're not. You're going to be lucky to be the morning guy in New York. And if you're the morning guy in New York, they're going to let you talk for 45 seconds. And then a buzzer is going to go off in your ear because you're talking too long, <laughs> yeah. which is a real thing they do in top 40 stations. And I just realized I loved music more than I loved mm. uh, radio, um, which is an important distinction. And if you're thinking of the career um ask yourself that question which you love more if it's if it's radio and the sound of your own voice have at it but if you're really into music see if you can find something else to do um uh but yeah so i just kind of bounced around and i was i when i finally was hunkered down and and started doing uh improv classes i was writing brochures for uh, uh, a consulting firm i was like mm -hmm. in their marketing department and um, this is like, what am I doing here? This is the job. My, this is like what my dad did. And my dad drinks way too much. <laughs> this is terrible. It was, it was, it was a deep, deep seated wish to become an actor, but I was just incredibly embarrassed to talk about it until I finally kind of had a nervous breakdown in my twenties and was like, I'm, I gotta give this a try. 
or I'll never forgive myself. And, uh, and then I just got really lucky really quick. Was there a job that you said, this, this is definitely it. I think I can make something of this, or was it a collection of sort of successes at getting cast in things? I booked three commercials in like the space of like 45, 50 days or something mm. in the summer of 99. And that made me feel like I was on some sort of right track. And I immediately, you know, as a union must join and qualified for health insurance that year and have done so ever since, knock wood. That was really great. And then when I moved to LA in the beginning of 02, I went out for a pilot. That pilot got reshot. They fired a bunch of people, kept me. Mm and a couple of other guys and then it got picked up it went to and it only went for like eight weeks we we, we were on up against american idol um oh. in the the uh clay and ruben year um, okay so the, the the show was still a total juggernaut and um we just got our asses handed to us week after week until finally nbc took us to the side of the track and shot us but <laughs> it was that moment where i was sort of like well i mean I, you don't hear about people getting welcomed to the business quite this easily. I, I should probably stick with it. And I love it. I really do. I'm in a bit of full disclosure. I'm in a bit of a, a lull right now, but I've been at this long enough that I'm not panicking that I, I, I have a feeling, you know, these things are cyclical and um, having never been enormously, hugely famous uh, it's not one of those things like where my time is over or anything, or like America's yeah. gotten sick of me or what have you. I, I just think, uh, you know, just right now, there's there's no job for me. There is likely one coming if history has been any example. So yeah. I'm just I'm just enjoying the podcast. It's also got to be kind of a, a a weird time still, kind of uh, as the pandemic is still kind of filtering along. Um, how do you feel about, and I think I've heard you ask this show, uh, question on your show, but how do you like doing um, the auditions yourself versus going into a room and doing it in front of somebody? Depends. Um, I like having complete control over what gets submitted. It's miserable doing comedy uh, like that. It's miserable doing comedy. I like to go in and try to because usually you go in, you've got the casting director, you've got a couple of the people who wrote the pilot, a couple mm. of producers. I, I really like trying to surprise them with their own jokes. I really like that yeah. challenge. Um, it doesn't always happen, but when it does, and you're just like, oh yeah, everyone has been coming through that, that coming to that joke through the front door, and I just took the window, huh? Surprise! How huh? you didn't think you could do that, did you? And that's a great <laughs> feeling. And a lot of that comes from you know the the improvisatory nature of my training and and trying to find those little extra buttons or or even just a gesture that can kind of elevate the 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 joke a little yeah. bit. Um, so I miss that terribly, and I I frankly don't know if we're going to go back to it. We will see. But on the other hand, um, I can do it in a very controlled environment. Um, if I fuck up, I can retake it. And um, I've booked a couple things through that, um, through the, the on tape, even before the pandemic, you know, things that were, were casting on tape because they were shooting out of state or what have you. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's got its perks, but it, it is, it's shitty for comedy. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know if you've uh, had any experience doing uh, comedy via Zoom or uh, similar medium, because uh, mm. I, I teach improv. 
yeah. um, where I work and things like that. And it's, I used to teach a course in the room and, you know, taught in San Francisco for a number of years, just publicly. Um, but doing it this way is a whole different learned animal because how do you get in a scene with somebody in this medium? Like we're talking on zoom now, right? Well, it's, it, there's that, there's also the sense of how do you, you know, you're going to have over talking, mm -hmm. which zoom will automatically block out or will ever, will just, you know, favor whoever started speaking first. Right. Right. You lose a fair amount of intimacy that way. I have not done any improv over zoom. I don't think, but I've done a couple of play readings and yeah, they're challenging. Yeah. They're challenging. Improv, I imagine, would be worse because so much of it is about eye contact and trust and and at the risk of sounding gross intimacy um, that you, by necessity, lose when you're doing this on Zoom. So it's hard, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Where do you teach? Uh, I teach where I work, which is, uh, it's a branding firm, international branding firm. And uh, I used to do it just in San Francisco. And now as we're coming out of the pandemic, the HR people want me to start kind of taking the show on the road to some of our other offices because okay. they've begun to see the value as the San Francisco office did of um, these sort of agencies are very sort of siloed, right? You've got designers and you've got writers and you've mm -hmm. got strategy people and they tend to stay in their lane. But when they started doing the improv classes, it, it was not designed specifically to do this, but they began mingling out of the class with people that they'd had fun doing scenes with, regardless of what sort of silo they were in. Right, right. And, and it began breaking those barriers down. So it's kind of interesting to see how that can be applied to a business situation. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, I've got a few friends who've done that sort of like uh, team building workshop improv stuff mm -hmm. with uh, in more corporate settings. And uh, it just harkens back to what I was saying earlier, when it's got that ham and them desperate to get out. Yes. And, um, and it doesn't matter if it's, you know, the community theater actor or, or the CFO of a Fortune 500. You know, there, there's going to be a little bit of uh, Mama Rose coming out. Mama's looking sharp, kind of <laughs> just right at the right at the precipice any given time. As you're on this journeyman's journey, um, do you see that, uh, you know, it'd be great to get like a, a role that perpetuates for years or um, you're just kind of happy to take whatever comes up and go as long as it goes? Well, I would certainly welcome consistency. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I, I, very few actors would not, um, uh, I would, you know, I think I, 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 I just kind of want to explore, you know, I got into this to explore different people and to see what it's like to try on different hats, both literally and figuratively. And I feel like there's still a fair amount to do in that regard. I also think that aging is helping me to a certain extent. Hmm. Um, I think it's, it's and this is, you know, a complete double standard and it is not this way for women and all. And I, I want to preface this by, by understanding that, making it clear that I understand that, but I think it's, it's given me sort of just the lines and character have, have kind of helped. I think the gray has kind of, hmm. uh, helped maybe dimensionalize me in the eyes of casting directors. And I'm just interested in exploring where that takes me. You know, I, I, uh, you know, I'd love to do a Western. I'd love to be in a mystery. I did a horror movie a few years ago, but I didn't die, which was a colossal disappointment. So I'd love to correct that at some point in the near future. Uh, I want to do more theater. Um, a lot of my favorite roles 
in theater are middle-aged guys, you know? Mm. So I've, I've absolutely aged out of Hamlet's, but you know, <laughs> I've already got a terrible, I've got terrible posture. So come at me, Richard the third. Um, there's a George from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf trying to get out. Um, you want a bitter failed academic? Look no fucking further guys. I'm right, I'm just gift wrapped. Let the record show. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I, there's just a lot of uh, things I wanna I, I wanna try to do. So I'm I'm looking for probably variety over stability at this point, and I'm lucky that I have that luxury. Yeah, and just to kind of circle back to the podcast medium, then at at the moment you don't have a gig in front of a camera, so the the podcast has to be at least somewhat a kind of fun way to keep in touch with people in the industry and keep your voice out there. Well, it's a way to keep my voice out there, but it's also just really edifying for me to hear these people talk about their process. And I mean, you've listened to the podcast, you know, we get actually pretty technical on it yeah. in terms of how do you prepare for an incredibly emotional scene? How do you handle dialects? You know, I, I, I want to, if I have anything to offer that is unique to the podcasting world, because there's plenty of podcasts that will talk about, you know, that will talk to lesser known actors and will will get their their stories, but I'm I'm... I think what I have to offer as an actor who is also hosting is this inquisitiveness about how do you create these characters? How do you bring someone to life mm. uh, off the page? Um, what do you do if you're playing someone who actually exists? How much do you you watch them? How much is an impersonation? How much is uh, a, a freshly realized character? All that technical stuff that I always wonder about is good for me. It's, it's a lot mm. like a quick little hour-long masterclass for me as a host, and I hope the audience gets something out of it too. That's great. That's great. Let's tell folks... Uh, where they can find Household Faces? Household Faces is on the Forever Dog Network and it is at Household Faces on Instagram and Twitter. And you can pick it up pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. Very good. And how can people uh, follow you? I know you're on Instagram. I'm on Instagram. I've, I've left Twitter um, and I am 30 to 35% happier having done so. But at Instagram, <laughs> I am at John Ross Bowie. Um, and, uh, you are welcome to join me for promotions of, uh, of the podcast, pictures of my dogs and, uh, the occasional political rant. Join us, won't you? Fantastic. John, thanks so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Mark, really nice talking to you. You too. Take care. Thanks to John for spending some time with me. He told you where you can find his soundcast and his socials in there, but you'll also find links to everything up on the blog entry for this episode at SuccotashShow.com. Now, I don't have a Succotash hotline and runaway truck ramp status call for you this week, but we do have another deep dive into the tweet sack. Right, Tweety? Here's the list of folks I found that were kind enough to mention at Succotash Show in their social media feeds in the past week or so. Corky Knievel. Jordan Brady. Cheap Show, Salty Language Pod, Dad Pants, The Jock Doc Podcast, Stuart Buckland, I Shake My Fist with Lisa, oh, I Shake My Head with Lisa and Sam, Alberto Contreras, Gift Feed, Misfit Scully, Screams and Moans, Hunter Block, Let's Chat Podcast, and Rock Improvaganza. Improvaganza? Improvaganza. If you want in on that blurbathon, just drop at Succotash Show into your socials at some point in the next couple of weeks, and we'll probably find you. 
That's pretty much all there is for Epi 272. Hope you enjoyed my talk with John Ross Bowie. Please do go check out his Household Faces Soundcast. And if you ever want to talk about your Soundcast, pick up the phone and call the Succotash and Runaway Truck Ramp Status Hotline at 1-818-921-7212. And coming up next week in this very same feed is Tyson and Episode 273 with a pastiche of comedy soundcast clips just for your ears. Until I see you in a couple of weeks for episode 274, please treat each other like decent human beings, won't you? Wash your hands, mask up, fax up, and if anyone asks if you've been listening to any good soundcast lately, won't you please pass the Succotash? You've been listening to Succotash, the comedy soundcast soundcast. With your host, Mark Hershaw. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants and... Imagine your company's name right here. Rate us and review us at Apple and Google Podcasts. Find us on the web at SuckatashShow.com. On Spotify. On Stitcher. On iHeartRadio. On YouTube. On SoundCloud. And wherever fine soundcasts are streamed and or downloaded. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Show. Like us on Facebook. Email us at marc at succotashshow.com or call into the Succotash Skype line at our toll call number 818-921-7212. You can also upload clips from your favorite comedy soundcasts directly to us using our direct upload link at hightail.com slash you slash Succotash. Succotash is produced and engineered by Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, the home of the hit. Our hosts are Mark Hershon and Tyson Sainer. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durges. Succotash is executive produced by Mark Hershon. Until next time, I'm your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please pass the Succotash. Goodbye. This has been a Succotash Patch production.